Hi there. I'm Laura Mark and I'm the keeper of Walmer Yard. Walmer Yard is the home of the Baylight Foundation, which explores how analogue and traditional experiences of architecture stand in an increasingly digital future of virtual and enhanced reality, where the half is replaced by the mobile phone. In this series of podcasts, we talk to those, often from outside the fields of architecture, who are using different means to explore a deeper spatial understanding of the buildings which we inhabit. Today we are speaking to Kate McLean about one of the lesser discussed sensors, smell. Kate McLean is a Programme Director of Graphic Design at Canterbury Christchurch University. She is an artist, a designer and a researcher who has created a unique way of understanding the smells of our cities through smell mapping. question I wanted to ask you um, how you first got into capturing smells. As with all really interesting things it happened by accident so it most definitely it wasn't a deliberate choice. It it came as a result of a really a creative block um, and I was researching how to put some tactile elements back into graphic design which I felt had gone far too far in in terms of the sort of like the skeuomorphic, the digital, the fakery. And I wanted to get something, I was trying to find sort of like graphic design's visceral sense again. And I was really interested in maps, mapping. And I was sort of like putting those two together and I was creating tactile maps of Edinburgh based on linguistic descriptors of parts of the city. And I was rendering those with a process called blind calligraphy, which is where you create temporary plates using just cardboard and everyday materials, and then run those through a printing press, but without any ink. So basically what you're doing is you're creating these different raised surfaces. So I was using that and I was creating these plates and placing them um, onto a printing bed, then running wet paper through it and rolling the press over. And I was creating these pathways through the city that um, separated the different sections. So the new town was very smooth and angular. The old town sort of like had this cobbled texture. Brunsfield was frothy because of the sort of like the coffees and the cappuccinos. And it was all very much based on sort of like human experience of the city translated into texture. I couldn't figure out for the life of me what to do next. Um, and we suddenly got given an assignment, which was to prepare something for um, feedback based on your research over the course of the previous sort of like nine months. I looked at it and sort of like everybody else went around the room and said what they were going to do. And I just sort of said, Kate, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, I'm going to make um, a smell map. And I went, what? <laughs> and I went, well, it, it's fine because I've been doing these touch ones. I'm just moving senses. And they said, oh, great, that'd be really interesting, a sort of like a, a smell map of Edinburgh. I said, no, it's going to be a smell map of Paris. And they said, why? I said, because I've got a week to do this and I'm spending the weekend in Paris, so I might as well do some research while I'm there. And it really came about, it was that quick. Um, and I made the um, the smells of Paris in my kitchen. And the first map really wasn't a visual one as much as it was just, it was a series of smells that were placed at different points on a board. Um, and there was a, 
um, markers about where those smells emanated from across the city. I had lived there previously, so I sort of like knew my way around. And we just took those, I took those and people sniffed them and I thought it would be a bit of light-hearted entertainment. And I was asking them to say, when you smell this smell, what's an emotion and a location that you associate with the smells? And my premise was that I thought they would sort of like go, oh, it's the smell of coffee and that reminds me of Lisbon or London or whatever. And that's the smell of cigarettes and that reminds me of South America or Spain. And it was actually far more personal. It was the most magical set of of data. I have these tiny post-it notes just full of emotions and locations for these different scents. And it was poignant. And I just thought there's something incredibly powerful here that is worthy of further exploration. And that was the start. I'll touch on the sensory mapping and the smell maps in a bit, but I'd like to pick up on some of the kind of deeper thoughts about smell first. So you kind of began to talk about it there, about the link between smell and memory, and I wondered whether you had any thoughts on that. There's an awful lot written about sort of like the interiority of smell, how it's a very individual experience and it moves individuals very swiftly through to different memories. So you've got the whole Proustian effect of the Madeleines where someone is sitting down and he has the, the taste and smell of the Madeleine and that takes him back to sort of like a childhood thing. And it there's definitely a connection there. The smells are individual, based on individual people. Diane Ackerman talks about how those smell associations, that I prefer to call them rather than smell memories, can change over time. And so if you've always associated sort of like the smell of cigarettes with a certain person, you may suddenly find that that changes to be another person that has more meaning in your life. Um, and Yann Martel talks about it in The Life of Pi as well, where on the boat, um, the smell of the flares reminds him of Pondicherry, which is where he's from. But then when he gets to Toronto and is narrating the, the story, the smell of cumin then reminds him of being on the boat with the flares. So you've got this sort of like your, your smell association changes is different for every individual but it also can change over time and I just think that's fascinating because it it means that it's a it's a fluid thing it's not a fixed moment that tends to be the way that most people understand it. I like the idea that it changes depending on kind of lived experience sensory engagement changes over time and through experience as well. Absolutely. And it makes smell something incredibly contextual. And I think that that for me has become one of the sort of like the highlights and the the key points of my work is to investigate and explore that contextual element and the other senses that come into play as a part of smell experience. I once heard you say uh, smell is kind of seen as a second class citizen of our senses. So why do you think that is? And do you want to expand on that? It comes from sort of like a, a lot of literature written at least sort of like 1980. 1985 was a sort of like a seminal year for smell. There were two books that were released. One was um, Patrick Suskin's Perfume um, and the other one was Alan Corbin's book about uh, sort of like the olfactory history of, uh, of France. 
And with those, prior to that, you had architecture and academic disciplines as a whole, and the arts in particular, had focused so much more on the visual and sound acoustics as being important. They were the aesthetic senses. The desire in urban planning was to eliminate smells. So the whole sort of like modernist movement was about removing things that were not aesthetically pleasing. And smell wasn't included in anything that was aesthetically pleasing unless you took it out to the realms of perfume or wine. And I don't know, I don't know if I've ever said this before, but I think that sort of like as we, we started to actually live in our cities a lot more and the smells of coffee started to come out and we stopped the packaging so much and we lived just a little bit more outdoors and started to appreciate and understand that we became just a little bit more in touch with smell and people realised that it had been under-researched. Um, it definitely is in terms of a sense from the medical perspective, also within sort of like the humanities. So it's sort of like double invisible is how I now phrase it. it. You can't see it, but it's also not a part of our cognitive processes when we're thinking about sensing and you've travelled to cities all over the world to map their smells and to and to research them. What's this taught you about smell and culture? The experience of smelling and the engagement that people have with it is incredibly similar across the world in the places that I have been. And I mean, that has to go in context. I'm, I'm generally dealing with people who have willingly signed up to do something. It's a, it's a privileged way of working. Um, I'm not dealing with people that are in olfactory, um, no go zones or in places that are particularly stinky a lot of the time. I'm dealing with sort of like everyday citizens that have got quite an awareness and are, are willing to sort of like think about smell and to foreground it temporarily. I think what I've, I've found very interesting about the whole process is that it's the similarity of individual responses to it and the willingness to engage and to open their minds to something different that means that that individuality comes through in what people sense. And there's a poeticism about it when you stop trying to identify smells, but rather seek to give them a name and to describe them. It changes the whole understanding of the smellscape because a lot of the time it's like, oh, what is it? I don't know. I don't feel like a success because I can't name that smell. I'm not an expert. But when you provide a different type of framework and a different approach, you end up with some astonishing descriptors for smells. And you also have some beautiful visual interpretations of smells. So just by seeking to enable people to communicate it in different ways, what I've learned is that that is possible. And there are new languages that are developing that become <laughs> that give people agency to be able to talk about smell. I think that's one of the things that I found on the walk that we did at Warmer Yard. Like I hadn't really ever thought about how I smell or the thinking about what I was kind of smelling or that kind of process. And 
the the act of talking about it or visualizing it brought that out I think that's good I'm glad it works because <laughs> because I, I, I always see it from my perspective about what I'm trying to like the joy for me comes in watching other people see that success and their capacity to be able to narrate their experience following the smell walk and the visualization process is something that is quite empowering I, that's what that's where I get my kicks from it when you do the smell walks you you kind of you have this kind of idea of smell catching and smell hunting where does that come from it's completely made up in terms of I realized that early on in in doing the smell walks that there are a number of questions that people were asking it became much easier to actually frame the introduction into this sort of like nose first world in a series of stages just to gently sort of like tutor people through the fact that there are different capacities of smell so smell is something that can travel long distances smell catching means that you might catch a smell that's traveled three miles across a city on a wind and is a particularly strong one of a brewery making beer on that day it means people start to sniff rather than just breathe which is really important for the process of encouraging more olfactory molecules to go up the nostrils so that you can experience that smell. And then the smell hunting is to realise that it's also an incredibly proximal sense. And if you get very close to things, you're much more likely to get them at a higher concentration. The terms were really because I was actually writing them down on the smell notes and sort of like saying, well, this is what this stage will be about. And I was just trying to come up with sort of like visual analogies or analogies for what is this like and to me smell catching is a bit like sort of like having a butterfly net trying to trap butterflies because it passes through the air it passes through at speed and sometimes you can be lucky enough to actually trap something in it but most of the time it doesn't work and so I I just I I drew this sort of like net of the butterfly catcher and thought yeah I'm going to call this one smell catching and then smell hunting came about because I was thinking about well what's the process of when you're trying to sort of like really locate a smell you're using other senses to give you clues and then it sort of like the the visual analogy became the magnifying glass so it became smell hunting and on your smell walks when you've been out kind of catching and hunting for smells has there been anything that's like really stood out or really surprised you one of the things that I always find arresting is the fact that you have a smell it disappears and you get you catch it again and it's that recovering a smell so it happened once in Pamplona where somebody actually says we had a smell but we lost it and it's like I that's exactly the experience of smelling and then again it happened in Kiev when we were sort of like coming down a a hill to the river and there was the smell of the river at the top and then it disappeared completely for the middle section and then it came into being again at the end that to me indicates the fact that sort of like smell is this constantly, it's ephemerality doesn't mean that it disappears. It's ephemerality means that it might actually move on circulating wind currents and then come back and revisit you at another point. It is very dependent on sort of like the vortexes and flows that surround us. And I remember when we did the one at Wormer Yard, we did it in autumn time and it was really rainy and you were saying like, oh, it's not... It's not too bad that it's rainy, actually. Smells are better in this weather. It's better in autumn than, like, a hot summer day or something. Can you tell us a bit about, like, the best conditions to go on a smell walk? Best conditions are really a sunny day, warm temperatures, 
quite humid because as humans, we need water to be able to, well, not to inhale, but to ingest and to sort of like process the olfactory molecules. You may be familiar with the smell of rain, as some people call it, petrichor. And that is, the water is basically, it's the the mist that descends just before rain happens. And that water is enough to activate those bacteria. And so that smell actually rises. So the water is really useful as an activator. The heat is really good because it encourages smell molecules to volatilise and so we're more likely to come across them. And you don't want it too windy because otherwise they're going to disappear and the the smaller smells are going to disappear quickly and you're just going to be left with the larger ones that have got more of a sort of like a concentration or that we can detect at those concentrations. So I think my favourite location for smell walking so far has been Singapore but you'll also really notice it if you're from the UK and you go abroad that you'll think other places smell more and that that is partly because you're not habituated to them but it's also because it's a warmer more humid environment and so Spain and France and Italy do smell more than home because it's just slightly warmer and you've just got slightly better smelling conditions. You touched on it almost then when you were saying about the smells of different places when you go there. But do do cities have distinct smells? And could you, like now you've travelled to quite a few, could you identify a city by its smell? No, I don't think I could and I don't think I'd want to. I think it, it, it becomes quite dangerous if you start to try and reduce a city to a particular smell. My work tries to show that it's the combination of those odours that makes up a city's sort of like smellscape and smell profile. And again, that will change over time. So if you've got different industry, if an industry moves out of the way, if food fashions change, the cultural environment changes, if parks are dispersed with, if traffic fumes dissipate or are no longer present, transportation systems change, the smells of that city will change as well. A city smells of the the activities that are happening there. Um, And so it's much more fair to say, look and be be aware of a city as a sort of like a multi-sensory environment rather than having a distinct smell. I thought you could make it and bottle it. And some of my early work was actually moving towards that. So Amsterdam, I worked with uh, the team at IFF and... I worked with their perfumers and they made the individual components of what was detected in Amsterdam cityscape. And then the, one of their perfumers put it together as a blended perfume. And it's, it's interesting, but it's not the smell of Amsterdam. It's a perfumer's interpretation of, and of the combination of elements that were there. It feels like if you take it away from the place, then you lose that connection. It's about the smell in its context. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a lovely set of perfumes um, called Scent of Departure, which are based on, they're, they're beautifully branded and marketed. Um, they've all got sort of like uh, luggage barcodes on them, luggage tags as their labeling. Sort of like there's one for New York, there's one for London, and they try to summarise a city. But New York's is all about apple scents. So what it's done is it's, it's, it's interpreted and it's, it's understood some of the working landscape, but it's also understood some of the, the more commercial aspects of those cities. 
And it's put those together to create a blend that is a signature for each of those places. Yeah, but it's not quite the the actual smell of a city. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to wear that? No. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't I did I once wore one of the um Amsterdam smells and it's the smell of canal. So I I thought sort of like, okay, I'm going to wear this for a day. And it was one of those days where I sort of like I didn't see many people and I went shopping into into town at the end of the day and I noticed that I was being given a wide berth. And then I met a friend in the evening and they said, oh my God, you smell like a tramp. And it's actually sort of like a geosmin type smell, but it's that sort of like dank sort of like cellar smell, which is absolutely lovely if you're in a damp smell at the cellar. But it's not if you're walking around the street smelling like it, because it smells like you ha- you've been homeless for about five days. <laughs> So no, I would suggest that wearing any parts of smells of cities is possibly not the best idea. So yeah, moving on from smelling like cities, (laughs) do you think smells should be considered more in the way we plan and design our cities? And what do you think architects can learn or city planners can learn from smell mapping? Yes, is the short answer to the first part of that question. I think that smell is an important consideration when we're looking at urban design um, and I think it's it's been brought very much to the fore by the recent crisis as well, with people spending a lot more time at home, is that building in green spaces and the importance of those natural scents that exist in nature rather than fabricated is an incredibly important part of urban planning and urban design. I think that architecture can work very well with smell mapping in terms of, in two respects. One is to actually look at the awareness of a local population as to what's important in its smellscape. So what I do is I I do the sort of like the groundwork and say, look, this is what is here. But then it would be very easy to actually translate that and move it onwards to say, okay, so from what is here, if you then worked with some of those smell walkers to say, you know what, what's most important about this, you could actually identify key elements of a smellscape that would enable architects to be able to work with it. So the idea of then being able to put plans out to be able to say, well, this is what we've planted here. And this is what this area will smell like at different times of year. You only need to look projects at like the uh, High Line in New York that has a very considered planting program in the middle of a city to enable people to in- encounter those different scents as well as the different acoustics and the different visuals. And I also think that architects could actually communicate what a small vortex might smell like or what an open space might smell like or if they're left to sort of like a, if they had a cupola or they have holes, oculus and holes in the roofs and things like that, how would that actually affect the smellscape of that particular building? There's a large capacity to be able to work together and for architects to work with the ideas of smell mapping. Yeah, it almost feels like it's a kind of, it's forgotten in architecture. Like we think about it in our homes when we put, you know, incense or candles or room sprays, but the actual architecture of the home doesn't really think about smell or even not just our homes, but the buildings we work in. Absolutely, and it's I mean it'd be lovely to to think that rather than masking the smells of our home with those things or to try and change them like that, we actually built in elements 
that enabled it to be there on a, a regular basis. So the idea of actually creating an airflow that can go through a space so that you didn't have to bring the smell of somebody else's air into it could be a lovely thing to be able to think about. How do you actually, and I'm sure much healthier as well in terms of living space, to not try and seal ourselves hermetically into a zone, but to actually work with the interior and out exterior spaces. And do you think the current pandemic will change our appreciation of the senses? Like smell can be done at a distance while touch is more intimate. Um, and in a time when we're worried about contagion, do you think it's something that smell might kind of become more appreciated maybe? It's, it's funny, it's a difficult one because a large part of smelling is about getting in close to things. So I think that is going to be very difficult. I think that the the pandemic's risen has has helped to raise the profile of smell because many of well, one of the symptoms of COVID nineteen is a loss of smell, and so those people that have temporarily lost their sense of smell and then regain it to some extent will be much more aware of the importance of smell in their everyday lives. And so it's, it's had a, it's had an interesting effect like that. The idea of it being a sort of like a more distal sense, I think it could again be, become more important through that. But also the fact that we care much more about our environments when you spend a long time in a single environment, parts of it actually become very important to you. I think that also possibly because we're zooming in so much on technology that to actually do anything that doesn't involve looking at somebody on a screen. It's actually a really welcome relief. <laughs> I almost feel like I'm right back at the start of my, my master's going, can we just have something that's dimensional around here rather than sort of like the, the sort of like the, the, the fakery that's in front of us? It's lovely to see you, but I would, I would, I would give my eye teeth to do this interview in person rather than online. <laughs> I, I did want to touch on the digital, actually. As our world is becoming more digital ha- and the kind of live experience is not as forthcoming as we can't all crowd together in a space, how do we continue to still engage with smell and still have it part of a combined experience when we're when we can't be together? It's a very difficult one because you can you can make virtual reality experiences and you can you can put sort of like masks on that enable you to be able to smell in VR um, and they will use a couple of sort of like small pads that are infused with certain things that get activated at key times in that experience but it's very limited it's like being sort of like I don't know two years old again and so the range and the nuance of actually smelling that we were really working towards with the smell walks disappears again. In terms of technology, my, my preference is to actually move towards direct experience of our own everyday lives, but then trying to do elicit a sort of like an empathy through the idea of animation um, and the idea of the, the smell maps as being sort of like a, a captured moment in time that enable people to imagine themselves into those smellscapes 
so they can think about what might be there at that particular moment and sort of like what that might smell like. So it's more about using the digital to encourage the imagination to work rather than to try and find a sort of like a replication for it. And where does your work go next? Where do, where do you take the smell maps from now? From this point onwards, what I'm looking at doing is actually now, I, I want the, the smell walk to, to continue and I'd like to sort of like build that up as an experience. So yesterday I actually put it onto um, Airbnb experiences to run them locally in Canterbury um, and to just offer it up as a, as a unique experience. Um, and from that, I want to just sort of like ascertain how people respond to it. In terms of sort of like academic profile at the moment, what I'm looking at doing is I'm just um, looking to work much more with the sort of the whole idea of cultural heritage and smell. So how the idea of the smell map might be used to record moments in time, to be able to communicate those moments in time, to be able to predict future smellscapes. Um, and to understand it in terms of the other sort of like cultural aspects of the city around it. So to bring it into that more sort of like holistic framework. Smell to me and so a lot of the other senses seem quite kind of understudied in terms of like how they relate to our cultural experience or our experience of a city. Um, and I think anything to deepen that is really needed at the moment. I think, I mean, I think it'd be really interesting to think much more with that sort of like that nose first head on just because it is so underexplored and underdeveloped I mean there's a whole sort of like capacity in there for creating some incredible magic and some incredible joy about the spaces that we live in and as I always say with the smell walk if you come across a bad smell you don't need to worry about it because it's only temporary it's not there for very long and it just adds into the whole experience of it in terms of saying, well, okay, the next one that comes along might be equally bad or it might be better. And it's like a sort of like probability game and a gamble about what are you going to go to next to see what that smells like or what are you going to come across? So anything that is particularly evil in the world of smell, hopefully is only temporary and doesn't come back on a recurring basis. Although having said that, I've just done a, I'm just in the middle of a project in, um, the northwest of the UK and it's a, a city that's famous for its uh, chemical industry and so it's called two, St- two Centuries of Stink and we've got, I mean I've just created the work and it's, uh, it's quite interesting looking at this layering of incredibly hostile smell environments from oh, hydrochloric acids and um, slurries and all types of things that were particularly used in the manufacture of alkali. So in order to make soap, which made a smell better, the people that work to create the, the the raw materials for that bound themselves in bandages to stop being sort of like eaten by the acid and to stop breathing these things in. And the whole sort of like the whole area has got, it's got dog food processing and that has got distinct aromas that affect the whole of the town. It's a community that's actually incredibly affected by smell. It's part of its cultural heritage. It's not particularly pleasant cultural heritage. It doesn't sit there in that nice perfumed sense, but it's very much sort of like the, the lived realities of people that are exposed to that on a daily basis. For me as well, um, I grew up 
traveling on a canals and smell became a really important part of that because we would know almost like where we were going through by the smell i think it's burton on trent or so we had a huge like bass brewery and you could smell the yeast or you could smell the brewing and it became like you kind of knew where you were based on what you could smell it was really important I think that's it. I mean, sort of industry and specialisation of different cities with different industries definitely brings that into play. So sort of like Birmingham and the Cabris and York and its Roundtree, the chocolate is palpable and it is in Amsterdam as well when the wind's blowing in a certain direction because all the, the, the chocolate places are sort of like to the north of the city. So you need a northerly wind in order to be able to experience the chocolate smells in the city. But it's interesting you say that, it's sort of like that, that industrial heritage is very much um, re- represented by its smellscape. Well, great. It's been really, really interesting. It's always a pleasure to talk anything sniffy and anything about sort of like around the world because it's, I know it's as a result of these types of discussions that there's a huge value in thinking about, it becomes a reflexive process as well. You start to sort of like say, okay, yeah, that's actually what I meant. I didn't necessarily mean it at the time or didn't think that at the time. So it's really, really just enjoyable to talk about it. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed that, you can catch up with our other two podcast episodes where I interviewed the poet Lionheart and sound artist Simon James. They are available on the Apple Podcast app or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. <laughs>